You're listening to the Nonprofit Buildup Podcast, and I'm your host, Nick Campbell. I want to support movements that can interrupt cycles of injustice and inequity and shift power towards vulnerable and marginalized communities. I've spent years working in and with nonprofits and philanthropies, and I know how important infrastructure is to outcomes. On this show, we'll talk about how to build capacity to transform the way you and your organization work. Hi, everyone. This week on the Nonprofit Buildup, we're talking with Dr. Dorian Burton. Dorian is currently the Chief Program Officer and Assistant Executive Director at the William R. Keenan Jr. Charitable Trust in Chapel Hill, North Carolina, a foundation that supports building healthy and whole communities. He was formerly the co-director of the Tandem Ed Initiative for Black Male Achievement and Community Improvement at Harvard University Law School's Charles Hamilton Houston Institute for Race and Justice, and was the Wasserman Foundation Fellow in the Doctor of Education Leadership Program at Harvard. Prior to Harvard, Dorian worked as an independent consultant with various nonprofits and school districts in Harlem, New York, Houston, Texas, and Newark, New Jersey. Dorian has provided strategic support to Newark public school principals in the launch of their Renew School turnaround initiative, and he's developed external partnerships for the Harlem Children's Zone College Success Office. Dorian's passion for shifting the conversation in the sector from a deficit-based framework to an asset-rich framework comes through so clearly during our conversation. He shares practical advice for nonprofits and funders on how to begin the shift from charity to justice. This conversation was recorded last summer at a time of immense uncertainty and which in April 2021 still largely remains. He focuses on how funders can and should listen to, work alongside, and partner with communities they're serving in order to problem solve and also about how to ensure that those communities can create ways to be self-sustaining. This conversation inspired me to reflect on sustainability models, how we can create them on our own, and community partnership in order to change the way we address the root causes of inequity. I can't wait for you to hear the tremendous insight Dorian has to offer. And with that, here is Dr. Dorian Burton. Hi, Dorian. I am really excited to have you joining us for our Fast Build Leader Series today. Uh, To get us started, can you tell us about the Keenan Charitable Trust, your role there, and the trust's immediate priority, particularly given our current environment? Absolutely. Well, thank you for having me. Super excited to be here. Uh, so I'm the Chief Program Officer at the William R. Keenan Jr. Charitable Trust in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. The trust is about 50 years old. We focus on roughly four program areas. Uh, so higher education, the K-12 space, um, which will be early childhood through the K-12 space, arts and culture, and I would say our most evolving portfolio is whole community health. And that ranges from everything from affordable housing, uh, food security, to the justice system. 98% of our funding goes into four states, and that's where the families have some type of personal or professional imprint. So North Carolina, New York, Florida, and Kentucky. As I think about our work and really thinking about pressing needs and how we think about our, you know, our day-to-day, it's really focused on how do we get proximate to communities? How do we reposition, I think, the narrative in philanthropy from one that is rooted in charity to one that is rooted in justice? I would say, you know, charity makes you feel good around the dinner table. I think justice is really about righting a wrong. And so our grant making is really targeted at um, thinking about leaders of color, folks that are doing amazing work on the ground and that are, I think, leading the charge around change. So that's us. 
And I really like that shift um, that you described, moving from charity to justice and framing your grant making around that. And as chief program officer, what role are you playing in that shift and how does that show up for you on a day-to-day basis? Well, I think there's a few things. I think first, just coming into philanthropy, and I've been in this space about six years now, I think one of the things that I first came across, one was the governance structure, right? It was a space that was largely governed by 65-year-old white males. I don't think there's anything inherently wrong with 65-year-old white males, but I think when you think about the decisions that they were making or where they were choosing to place resources, often it was from communities that they weren't from or uh, had never really stepped foot into. And so as you think about leadership and the governance of philanthropy, there, there needed to be and there needs to be a fundamental shift. So you have organizations or institutions that are 90% to 100% white making decisions for communities that are 100% of color. And I think if you look at the reverse, in no other place would you have to have that, right? So you would never have a space where you had institution that was 100% Black or 100% Hispanic making decisions for institutions or communities that were 100% white. And so really thinking about, one, how do we start to make that fundamental shift around how we think about leadership? And then also, how do we deploy resources? Another, I think, you'll find as we continue to down this conversation that I I think I'm I'm very critical of the space, but critical in a way that I think is also very hopeful for, for the work that we can do. You know, deploying resources in a way that was not perpetuating the inequalities that we were trying to solve for. So, for instance, if you're giving, there, there was huge disparities between how we would and other organizations would fund white-led institutions versus communities of color towards institutions of color or that led by people of color. You would find that money that was tied to leaders of color was often very much so program restricted, which is, was in smaller amounts. And that was really kind of coded in a way that said, well, we have to wait till they grow. or We have to wait until they get to, to pass. On the flip side, I think you would find that organizations that were led by white leaders would get much bigger grants. Uh, the grant dollars would be around general operating costs and would not be restricted in that same way. And I think what is ironic is that you usually have those institutions would be subgranting the smaller institutions that we said never didn't have the capacity to actually hold that type of grant. But these are the people that are actually doing the real work. And so I think trying to flip our the paradigm and the hierarchy, get onto the ground to get proximate to the folks who are leading the change and say, well, what are the things that you want to do? As opposed to, I think, us mapping our own reforms on to, to communities and onto organizations, I think, which has dire consequences. Second part of that is also thinking about how do we change the narrative of the communities that we're responsible to and, and that we're serving. One of the, the big things I also noticed when I, when I stepped into the space is that Philanthropic institutions were rewarding individuals that told the worst stories the best about communities that they serve. And my mom always told me, you can only treat somebody as good as you talk about them, right? And so facing or pushing these deficit-based narratives in order to build resources was counterintuitive to the work. And so how we think about framing the communities that we serve, how we understand the assets that are within those communities is key. One of the I think the big, big folks that is driving that work is Travian Shorters. I'm sure you're familiar with Travian and the work that he does with Beaming and has been doing for a long time. But really starting to shift shift to an asset-based frame in this work because I, it, it really changes the questions that you ask and the results that you're, the outcomes that you're looking to, to achieve. So 
for example, we uh, a very small change, but I think it leads to a very different set of outcomes, right? Was in our application process. You know, we changed the question from, you know, what is the problem that you're seeking to alleviate to what are the aspirations that you have for the community that you serve? That switch in the questioning might seem like a small thing, but it really moves the conversation to not looking at communities as problems, as opposed to there are deep assets there. There are leaders that have been on the ground before we ever decided that we wanted to be involved. There are people that were driving change. There, uh, there are fully capable individuals on the ground moving this work that we can get behind and that we can dream together and aspire for something better for communities as a whole. And so those are some of the things that I think we work on and that we're trying to change in our own internal process, but also trying to uh, rethink how we put resources on the ground as well. I think that's really powerful, like particularly when you're talking about these shifts, right? And you're talking about the leadership shift with the way we look at governance organizations and how that then translates to programmatic outcomes and supporting of those outcomes. And also when you, particularly when you talked about that shifting that narrative from deficit-based to really asset-based, asset-rich narrative about the communities that we're serving. And what I, a lot of the work that I do around infrastructure is saying, how do we take these frameworks and how do they then show up in uh, our processes, our, our policies within the organization? And so when you're talking about shifting that question in your application, for example, I think that that has a huge like huge implications about the kind of outcomes you're then looking for and supporting and able to create. So I think that is all really powerful. And building on that, because you are engaging with nonprofits, I would love to hear what kind of advice would you provide to nonprofits that fundraise as a significant part of their budgets? In other words, what do you think should be top of mind for them right now during this time, particularly during this time of uncertainty? Yeah. I'll answer that in, in two ways, because I think the first is that, you know, folks uh, that we're charged with serving the nonprofits will always ask, well, what do we need to do to get funding into and to push? And I think that power dynamic is the wrong dynamic. It really should be what are our philanthropic institutions need to do to reform our space to better serve the folks that are on the ground. There is no way that executive directors need to be running around, chasing dollars, going from institution to institution. If you invest in somebody, get behind them, find a way to help them gain funding. This is not a job that you can do behind a desk. You really have to get out into community. You have to work alongside the folks that you're charged with serving and it is not their sole responsibility just to raise money, right? Because if they're just raising money, they're not on the ground doing the things that they're passionate about doing, and they're not affecting change in a way that they can be. So the first is philanthropic institutions need to reform how we do our grant-making process. It also can't be this space where we are pitting nonprofits against each other in this in a Thunderdome, you know, winner-takes-all type of mentality. So in that it is really on us to think about, you know, how do we deploy resources? How do we convene? But also, how do we help them to garner additional resources? On the nonprofit side, I think to get more so to the question that you asked, I think making a space where you're not tied to philanthropic dollars, right? And that's not the only, that's not that large of a piece of your capital stack. So what are the different ways that you can generate revenue? What are the ways that you can move effective programs into effective policy that are tied into hard dollars, right? If you are fundamentally changing the way that we think about housing and the way that we think about education through your program, 
that needs to be moved into scale and to think about how do our cities adopt that? How do our states adopt the work that you're doing to scale it towards large to larger change? And that also ties it to harder dollars that I think are not as fickle. Philanthropy, the dollars, every three or four years, a new report will come out. And then all of a sudden, I think folks want to move and, and change and, into that space with the, the, the kind of changes of the wind. And so philanthropy has historically been a very fickle space around funding. And so it is not one that I would depend on. I think it is one that can be risk capital for innovation, can help to seed work and can help to create, uh, I think, bright spot models. But it is not built for, I think, that long term pool of resources. And so... You're talking about diversification of funding sources and not being you know, 100% reliant on philanthropy, which makes complete sense to me. So I'm thinking of the nonprofits that I talk with and run into, and they're saying, well, how do we do that? So what, how, what's their first step? How do you get to the point where you are now, you have diversified funding sources, you're not 100% reliant on philanthropy for your revenue, but what's their first step? Because right now they are. And so for those organizations, what do you suggest? I think understanding what are the models that can help to pull in earn revenue into a space. So an example would be, I'm not saying that this is, that's right necessarily for everyone, but I think that I would like to see more of our, our nonprofit institutions, the ones that are doing really good work, being able to be adopted or to pull in to really changing systems at a larger scale would be for, let's say, our education partners or some of our education partners. You know, they're, they will come to us and say, hey, you know, we're doing really good work. Can you fund us to do work in, let's say, a, a school district, right? We'll say yes, of course, because that's what we're supposed to be doing, right? But at the same time, there is a very clear value that that nonprofit has to the school district. The school district has funding uh, that might not always be allocated in the right way, and but that nonprofit is is changing the way that the organization is doing work. There is a clear value towards what their outcomes are. There is there's these shared values, and so thinking at the district more as a very clear partner as opposed to something that is transactional and only dependent on the philanthropic dollars. So removing kind of us from that space where they have a trusted partnership and that they are thinking about their funding and their resources and building the capacity around them to do that. And in some cases, that is using philanthropy for the first two or three years and then that model switching, giving the district enough time to, to reform what they might be doing or dollars that they might be spending. I think that there is a lot of money that is out there, right? Philanthropic dollars are a very small part of that. I use the Gates Foundation, for example. The Gates Foundation is one of the top four, if not the biggest foundation in the world, right? They spend about $400 million a year, roughly, I think, around that on, on education and, and other things. When you think about one school district, let's say the Houston Independent School District has, you know, a multi-billion dollar budget, employs about 29,000 people, and that's one school district. So, Gates, $400 million might seem like a lot, but if you think about the total budget of one district, one large urban district, I mean, it trumps that, right? All of the spending that they, that they do here. And so, like I said, I think philanthropic dollars can be a catalyst for change, but we have to figure out ways to support our nonprofit leaders on the ground to find more stable pots of resources and revenue. And also thinking about our government institution, how they can reallocate those dollars, how they can spend those to really adapt and bring in effective programs and turn those into effective policies. Does that make sense? 
No, it, it makes complete sense. And, you know, what you're saying and I, what I want people to hear is that you're not saying don't rely on philanthropy at all, but it's like use that as part of your model, but then expand. And I think that that second piece is what nonprofits need to hear and actually look at themselves and say, how can we use our leverage and expand in that way so that we are not just wholly reliant on philanthropy? So it makes complete sense to me. And I think, you know, I want to circle back to something that you said, Doreen, when we were talking about how philanthropy needs to start to change that whole power dynamic and stop with this thunderdome sort of pitting nonprofits against each other. Why do you think that happens? So I, I think that there is a misconception that when folks walk into philanthropy, their IQ goes up 40 points, right? All of a sudden, uh, now that you're giving out money, you're the smartest person in the room. Your jokes get a lot funnier and everything like that. I think that there is, there has to be a shift bet- behind what we want to do versus what has already been doing, been done on the ground. And how do we get behind folks that have already created the tables to do that? So, you know, you might have a grandmother who has been running amazing literacy program in the bottom of a church for 40 years. Why don't we find an opportunity to get behind her and scale her work as opposed to say, oh, well, we're coming in with this brand new literacy initiative and we're going to build this table and then we're going to invite you to a seat at the table in your own community. It doesn't make any sense. We're going to ask or we're going to ask a focus group opinion on something that we want to do, knowing that we're already going to do it anyways, right? And so it's using community as more of an insurance policy than actually valuing them as a partner or understanding that people on the ground know what they need better than we know, right? And, you know, I know what I need in my household better than anybody else, right? And so understanding that there is a a true partnership on there. I don't think because of the leadership or folks that have been in leadership fully understand and appreciate the brilliance that's in communities. I think you put it into that there can only be this silver bullet type of solution for our work. So let's say, okay, well, we're only going to fund third grade reading. And all of a sudden that's going to change institutional racism and poverty or the institutional racism and and how that has created poverty-stricken situations in our community, as opposed to looking at things in a more comprehensive way. And I say that so an example would be, you know, when I bet on the things that happen or, or my family thriving, it's not just one thing, right? It's I'm looking at their school for my kids. I'm looking at housing, making sure they have a safe place to live. I'm looking at their health care, making sure that my kids are healthy. I'm looking at my job to make sure that they have a stable like financial structure. We need to make the same type of bets on our communities that we're making in our own household. For some reason, we think because communities have not been served well by systems that all of a sudden we can just do this one thing and it will change. And that's not true because that's not, you know, that's not what we believe in our own house. And so I think it creates this, there can be only one type situation in, in our communities that does not serve them well. It often leads to nonprofits having mission creep and trying to do everything because we have not properly funded the organizations to partner and find ways to collaborate and really shine towards the things that they are really good at individually and to, to, to come to get, come together towards a, a collective action that I think would be uh, lead to better outcomes for uh, for community. And what I'm hearing from what you're explaining, which makes a lot of sense, right, is this idea that philanthropy comes in, can observe, can understand what's happening, be more relational, and then trust 
the people and organizations that are already doing the work and find out how they can support them to do their own work. And so I'm going to ask the same question that I raised around how nonprofits get started making a shift. How do funders start to make that shift? Because we all talk about doing that. You know, we talk about having trust and being a partner with grantees, but what, how do you get started if you're a funder that knows these things, but hasn't historically acted that way? Yeah. So I think one, understanding the history behind the work that you do, right? And so institutions making that organizational shift to really build a, you know, when we are going into communities and we're trying to walk alongside them, what is the history that has created the inequality that we're seeing, right? You know, if you're going to talk about affordable housing, you better know what's going on with redlining or what, what has happened with redlining, right? If not, I think you walk into a space and assume that a community is inherently deficient as opposed to there has been a set of systems that have been placed in this community over over decades to be in the space that they're in right now. That that is not just in the history that's happening in the present. So it's it's one thing how you think about your work and how you think about the history behind what you're what you're working in and or on. Two, thinking about your staff and is it reflective of the community that you're aiming to serve, right? Not just your staff, but your board. And I think what I see in a lot of institutions is that they will create a diversity and inclusion role with no real power, right? So is your staff diverse, but do the folks on your staff have decision-making power, right? Do they have power within your organization to really move money and resources in ways that they feel necessary and to be responsive to communities? And the same type of diversity on your board in ways that I, I think, again, will build bridges across lines of difference and help us to see our blind spots. Third, I think, are you guys proximate to the communities that you serve, right? Are you moving to really understand and be present? Because what you can think at your office behind your desk might make complete sense until you actually get on the ground. And so working with folks that are on the ground and do you value their leadership, right? Is it a space where you are creating where you're the hero of the, of the story versus getting behind individuals, being responsive in your philanthropy to help them be the heroes and the heroines of their own story because they're fully capable of it? And then, again, I think shifting real dollars, right? Uh, if you show me your budget, I'll show you what you care about, right? And I think for us at the trust, that is something that I think we can do better, right? These are, note that when I'm being critical, I'm also being critical of ourselves, right? There are still changes that, that we need to make as we think about our board and we think about who we hire and we think about our history and our past. What does that mean? How we, in, in, in some cases, perpetuate the inequalities that we're trying to serve for, uh, solve for. So when I'm being critical, note that I'm being critical of myself as an actor in this space, as well as the organization and institution that I work for. So during, we have great advice now for nonprofits and funders. And not on top of that, we have the practical next steps, right? These are the things that nonprofits can do that funders can do to get started on that, that shift, that critical shift that we're talking about. With all of that in mind, what do you wish we did less of as a sector? And what should we be doing more of? Let's talk. We talk a lot. You know, we say, uh, I think for uh, we convene a lot. If you're at a convening and it is just funders in a room and there's nobody from the communities that you serve, then you're in the wrong room uh, or you're wasting your time. Right. It, it's a space where 
you know, you'll find that we'll pat each other on the back around the good work that we're doing, or we get in a room, we won't bring the folks that we're truly responsible to serving and getting behind into that space because they're scared that, it, that they're going to ask us for money. Well, that's your job. That's what you, <laughs> they should be asking you for money. They should be, if I get a call, I know what it's for, uh, right? But that's my job. And so I think we need to, we need to think about less talk. I think that we need to also not be scared to, I think, to be innovative in this work. Looking at our past and looking at where this has come to where we are now, it has come a long way. Don't lose hope in that. We still have a long way to go, and I think we have to work with the Beats University. But if you think about the work that Darren's doing at Ford and Lejuna and, and Joe Scandalberry is doing at Kellogg, and a lot of folks moving this work, uh, Melanie Brown at the Gates Foundation and you know, William Buster, all those folks that are really mm-hmm. in there, Tanya Allen, Allen and Skillman, that have been doing this and really driving it, those are folks that I think that we can look towards. It's not like we don't have people that are doing it. I think being able to move it with a quick sense of urgency and urgency that our communities deserve, right? Mm-hmm. Um, do we need another study? Do we need another report? Maybe in some cases, but probably not, right? I got a organization about six or seven months ago. It was a funder saying, you know, we do a, a report on the, on the opportunity gap or achievement gap. Absolutely not. <laughs> you know, that, that's something that has been understudied and underfunded. Right? Our, our communities, I think, have been overstudied and underfunded. And so we owe it to them to work with a sense of urgency. I think I wish that we get more of thinking about wealth creation and ownership. You know, if you are thinking about putting money on the ground for our communities, how are you tying that to making sure our communities own their own community? Right. How are we thinking about wealth creation in that way? How are you thinking about wealth creation? I think Pamela Jolly will talk about it, that it's going to it takes three generations to really move into a place of wealth. And I think we need to be moving the conversation to really getting to the root causes as opposed to uh, just fixing the, you know, the symptoms of what, you know, long-term uh, unjust racial policies that have put on our community. Yeah, and that, that shift to thinking about wealth creation and ownership, I think if that were really at the core of a lot of the work uh, that we were doing, I think the way we showed up as nonprofits, as funders would be so critically different. So I completely agree with that. And I like how you just put it, let's talk, right? Like we're, we have communities that are overstudied and underfunded. One thing that you also said in your response, Dorian, is that we should not be afraid to be innovative in our work. And so one of the things that makes me think about innovation, and I don't know if it makes other people think this way, is infrastructure. How strong is your organizational infrastructure, your board setup, your policies, your procedures, the way you're structured as an organization, both internally and externally? How are those things in place to support your innovation, to support your creativity as an institution? So I'd love to find out from you how Keenan Charitable Trust is thinking about building its infrastructure during this time and and generally, and how does it think about supporting infrastructure of its grantees? to promote that kind of innovation? Well, I think, one, there has to be kind of a philosophy at the philanthropic institution to really think about, are they funding 
outputs or outcomes, right? And so what I mean by that, you know, we should be very thoughtful about the systems in which we work, who those systems serve, and then try to create, I think, a split screen innovation within that system. And so the split screen, I think, recognizes that there are individuals in the current system that have daily needs that need to be met, but they're also a better way to meet those needs. And I think building systems that are more equitable. So uh, I think an example would be let's say gas-powered cars versus electric, right? And say, if we want to get rid of gas-powered cars tomorrow, the infrastructure wouldn't allow for that, right? There's uh, there's too many cars on the roads, there's too many gas stations, there's too many jobs, other things that are tied into that. But we do need to think about our environment and think about, you know, how do we move to, you know, cars or vehicles that are more energy efficient, right? And so phasing out the gas power while we build the infrastructure for, uh, let's say, if we were moving to electric, then we build the infrastructure to be able to do that. I think currently an example for us would be, you know, a, a shelter will come to us and say, okay, well, we need more beds for individuals that are in between homes. And that's a very real need. That's something that we have to fund, but it doesn't get to the root cause of homelessness, right? And so being able to fund outputs, but also don't lose sight of what the actual outcomes are. So the now, and then what are the things that we need to be doing upstream as well? And so we're trying to put, uh, be very thoughtful, I think, in our strategy for what are the immediate needs, but also what are the things that need to happen upstream and providing the funding that it's going to take to get there. And I don't think that, you know, there's never a grant that I said that was enough money, right? We are a small piece of that, but it's not enough money to actually, I think, to change towards, to build that change. It's going to take a lot of other folks, and I think it's going to take a lot of other resources. And so when we're thinking about that transition and building of infrastructure to really be deliberate about doing that and knowing that we're in that point of transition is important. And, you know, your responses, Doreen, have been really insightful, really thoughtful. And I want to ask you a question to help us continue to build knowledge through books and people we should learn from or about to close us out. What book do you think we should read next or what artist do you think we should be paying attention to? Oh, it's tough. Well, I give you the two books that I'm reading right now. One is The Purpose of Capital by Jed Emerson. Jed is a friend and, and I think has thought about impact investing in, in some different ways. I'm also reading Medical Apartheid by Harriet Washington, which I think as, as we're thinking about our healthcare system, as we're thinking about who has access and how that was created, very strong book. There's two YouTube videos that I would recommend uh, watching. One is James Baldwin, and he debates, has a debate with uh, William Buckley. And the conversation is, is the American dream at the expense of the American Negro? And then another conversation that James Baldwin has with Nikki Giovanni. Both of those were, I think, really insightful. As, as we think about the moment that we're in and the, tr- the change that we're trying to drive, I think it's very important to understand how we got there, who are the leaders, and that has set the foundation for that. There's a quote that when, a, when we lose an elder, I might not get this exactly right, but we, when we lose an elder, a library burns. And so understanding where folks have been to understanding where we are now, how do we build those bridges across generation, I think, in a way, in an effort to move forward. Very insightful conversations, and uh, I've been reading a lot of Baldwin lately. 
So thanks for those recommendations, Dorian. I will put them all in the show notes so that everyone can have access to them. And that's great that we're also talking about YouTube videos and being able to learn and get some insight information from uh, YouTube as well. Dorian, thank you so much. Uh, You have shared such knowledge and just um, being so thoughtful and insightful in your responses. And I think that not only that, you've been really practical in terms of what leaders can do in their own organizations to help them build bravely for uh, the sustainability of their communities. So thank you again so much for joining us. Thank you for listening to this episode of Nonprofit Buildup. To access the show notes, additional resources, and information on how you can work with us, please visit our website at buildupadvisory.com. We invite you to listen again next week as we share another episode about scaling impact by building infrastructure and capacity in the nonprofit sector. Keep building bravely.